me invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles now to the Gospel of Matthew uh, and turn with me to chapter 9. We're going to move a little further ahead um, in Matthew's writing this morning. As you're turning there, uh, just a couple brief announcements. One, thank you to everyone who came out last night um, to Vernita Weller's presentation. She shared with us, um, yeah, a a challenging and wonderful uh, presentation about the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, his vision of the beloved community, and also some some ways that we can think about how how that challenges us uh, to live into that vision of um, not just what Dr. King shared that vision, uh, but really how Dr. King drew that vision from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and 7. So that was, um, that was a wonderful evening last night. Also, I want to make you aware, this Wednesday is the start of Lent, uh, and we'll begin with Ash Wednesday. There is a community service being held at the Nazarene Church in Williston. Um, it's pretty close to the Restore in Williston, if you know where that is. Um, a number of community churches, uh, North Avenue Alliance, Essex Alliance, the Church at the Well, St. Timothy's Anglican Church, and our church are partnering to, to lead little parts of that service. So if you're free, that's 7 o'clock this coming Wednesday. This morning, I, I want us to think about how we deal with the unexpected, how we deal with things that are surprising to us. Sometimes it's hard to know whether a surprise is a gift to us or simply a headache, something for us to have to manage or or deal with. And our perspective or our attitude when we're confronted or when we encounter a surprise dramatically changes our experience of that thing. Some of you know I'm a, a fan of the rock band U2. And if you can remember way back to the 80s when I was seven or eight years old and probably shouldn't have been watching MTV and YouTube music videos, uh, they filmed a live version of one of their, their hit songs, uh, Where the Streets Have No Name. They wanted to, to create a second m- music video for that particular hit. But they had the idea, they're always, uh, like ro- most rock bands, kind of provocateurs, and so they thought they would film the music video for this particular song on the top of a corner store in in downtown Los Angeles at one of the busiest kind of intersections in the city. And the way they did it was that they announced a few hours before this concert performance that, that they were going to have a free rooftop concert for anyone in LA who wanted to attend. They announced it over local radio stations, and within, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, there were thousands of people flooding the downtown of Los Angeles. At that moment, U2 was one of the the hottest tickets in the world. You would spend hundreds of dollars, if you could even get your hands on a concert ticket, to see U2. And here was this opportunity to see them up close and personal right there in LA. But in the course of filming that video, the police also got involved because you can imagine what that did to late afternoon rush hour traffic in Los Angeles, right? Thousands of people filling the streets at a key intersection. Surprises raise questions for us, right, in in evaluating them. 
In this case, right, there are questions about whether a rock band has the authority to just set up and, and have a concert anywhere or anytime they choose. Right? Did they need to ask for permission to do this? Was this a responsible thing to do? Was this actually a gift to their fans, or was it just kind of a, an irresponsible promotional event? Can we trust what's happening in the midst of a surprise? Is it actually a good thing? Right? How do we evaluate these things when they're unexpected? The reason I, I bring this up is because I think as we continue on in the, the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus almost con committed to the element of surprise in his ministry. Jesus continues to do things that don't neatly fit in boundaries or expectations. He's constantly doing things to surprise us. And so today as we move on from the Sermon on the Mount and into Matthew chapter 9, let me briefly just highlight some of the surprising things we read about in that in-between material that we're, we're not covering. First of all, we, we hear about how after Jesus goes up on the mountain, right, he teaches in this incredible way. He, he in, in a way, says he's going to fulfill the law of Moses, which is in and of itself a surprising, controversial thing to say. We're told at the end of Matthew 7 that the crowds were amazed at what Jesus had said and the way in which he taught. And particularly, they were amazed at the authority Jesus seems to have to say and do these surprising things. Moving from Matthew 7 into Matthew 8, Jesus goes out into uh, the, the Galilee region from from that place of preaching. And he does even more surprising things. We see the very beginning of chapter 8. Jesus goes out and he heals a leper. Who by nature of their physical condition was cut off from the community. Was not someone that rabbis routinely approached or had social interaction with. But Jesus chooses to heal this man. Moving on from that healing, then Jesus is approached by a Roman centurion, who again is, is public enemy number one in that community. But this man asks Jesus to heal his servant who's fallen ill. And even believes Jesus has the authority to do this miracle without even traveling to his home. He says, Jesus, I know you can do this. Would you heal my servant? And, and Jesus chooses to do so. Right, to the surprise and maybe the dismay of many. After that, Jesus is surprising in a different way. Jesus is approached by teachers of the law, the most respectable people in that community. And they ask if they could be Jesus' disciples. And Jesus actually turns them away, saying they, they don't fully understand the cost, the commitment necessary to follow him. And then finally, at the end of Matthew 8, Jesus gets in a boat. He travels away from, from the western shore of Galilee, and he goes over to a region known as the Decapolis, the pagan region of the Galilee. On the way there, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. They find themselves in the midst of a storm, and they are sure that this is the end, only for Jesus to speak to the wind and the waves. And the disciples are surprised. They are amazed at one who has authority 
to speak even to the sea itself. And if that weren't surprising enough, as soon as they come through the storm, they get out of the boat over there in the the eastern region. And the first thing Jesus does is he goes to a village named Gadara. He finds a man living among the tombstones there, a man full of demon possession. And Jesus proceeds to transform the scariest guy in town into the local evangelist. The pattern here throughout Matthew 7, Matthew 8, is that Jesus continually does things that don't have an easy explanation. He calls an increasingly unexpected group of people to follow him. He chooses to heal people that were presumed to be cut off from polite company. He says and do things that aren't in anyone's playbook. Certainly not the playbook of Israel's Messiah. That brings us into chapter 9 today. As Jesus gets back in a boat, he travels back to Capernaum, which had become sort of home base for he and his disciples. I'm sure that not just the crowds, but even Jesus' own disciples are trying to catch up with Jesus, trying to process what he's doing, what he's about. And wondering not only what will Jesus do next, but should Jesus do that? Should I be excited? Should I be scared? Should I be nervous about what Jesus will choose to say and do? So I want us to try to to step into their shoes. Consider this passage from Matthew 9 from their perspective as we read it this morning. Let me pray for us as we read God's word together. Lord Jesus, you have come as the revelation of God's own presence, God's own word, God's own character and heart for us in human flesh. Jesus, as we read about, as we hear and see this morning, what you have chosen to do. Would we be willing to give you permission to be who you are and to consider who you say we are? May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all your people this morning be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is Matthew Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So as Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and came to his own town, to Capernaum. Verse 2, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk? 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. Keeping with the the previous few chapters, we have yet another account full of surprises. It's interesting to look at how this story is recorded in Matthew in comparison to the other two Gospels that share this as well. Luke and Mark both also record this story. But Matthew is often the more efficient storyteller. He's interested in what Jesus wants to teach us, interested in the point of the story. And so sometimes he leaves out some of the more colorful details. But we know from the other gospel writers that maybe the first surprise of the day was how this man came before Jesus. They tell us that on that day in Capernaum, the crowds were becoming so immense, they were were pressing in, and Jesus went into a home to teach, and and there there was no room any longer in the house for people to gather. They began to gather outside the home and even to come up onto the rooftop of this household. And when these men turn up with their friend who they desire to bring to Jesus to receive healing, they actually make the decision to cut part of the roof out of this household to lower their friend in, to get to Jesus, just to to have an audience with him. So surprise number one is this hole in the roof, right, and a man being lowered down in front of Jesus. But equal in surprise to the way this paralyzed man meets Jesus, I think, is how Jesus initially greets him. Right, Jesus has just been on this incredible healing tour throughout Galilee. Right? A big part of Jesus' reputation is that he is a physical healer. He can heal the sick. He can restore sight. He can take away leprosy. And so as these friends lower their friend who's paralyzed before Jesus, Jesus looks at the man and he says, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't don't know what his friends were thinking, but I can imagine that if I've just taken the effort to carry my friend from who knows where, all of this distance, to meet Jesus, if I'm probably going to have to answer to this homeowner tomorrow for the hole I've just put in their roof to get him there, and I put him before Jesus, the most renowned healer in all of Galilee, in all of Israel, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven today. And I might feel like Jesus is missing the point here. Right? Jesus, do you see his legs? Don't you know what we're here for, Jesus? Jesus' words don't seem to be quite enough in this particular situation. So it's possible that this group of friends is surprised at Jesus' words that they don't address what they see as the real need here. But before they can say or do anything to respond 
the town's religious leaders step in with their own surprise. Right? They're, they're beginning to monitor Jesus. They're wondering whether Jesus is someone they can endorse, whether Jesus is a teacher they should authorize or not. And for them, Jesus' words are not too little. Jesus' words here are too much. Shocking to them that Jesus could even say such a thing. Right? For who but God alone forgives sin? What person has the authority to speak on God's behalf in this way? And so suddenly Jesus has this pile of controversy on his hands. Somehow Jesus has cho chosen to, to say the one thing that could make everyone in that room puzzled, disappointed, angry, offended at the approach he's just taken. At the end of verse 3, I don't know if there's anyone in this room that's happy with Jesus. Everyone has an idea of what Jesus should be doing, but isn't. And I think most of us, whether we let on or not, most of us are pretty good at assuming we know what Jesus, we know what God should be doing in our lives. If he would just listen to us. Right? We have our list of shoulds. Jesus, this isn't what should be happening with my family. Jesus, this isn't what should be happening with my health. Jesus, this, this way you're acting or, or, or moving or, or this theological position isn't comfortable with what I think you should be about. Jesus, let me give you my list of expectations shoulds. But in verse 4, we're told Jesus is well aware what's running through the minds of everyone in that room. And Jesus knows what he could have done or what he should have done according to them. Right? Jesus could have healed this man with, with a, a single word, with his first greeting. And he could have made his friends happy with Jesus. Jesus knows that he could have avoided even mentioning the forgiveness of sins and kept himself out of controversy with the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus hasn't come to do what we think he should do. Discipleship, if we read any of the Gospels, has never been about Jesus meeting our expectations. And so in verse 6, he says that as the Son of Man, which means he's, he's the Son of God, he's, he's a unique representation of our humanity, who better than anyone before or since understands what we truly need, what it really means to be fully alive, fully human as we've been created to be by our Father. Jesus says, as the Son of Man, he has been authorized by the Father to do whatever it takes to bring restoration and healing. Whether that's making a lame man's legs strong again, 
or whether that's freeing the heaviness of his heart with an expression of God's forgiveness. Jesus is going to do those things. But what if in this particular case, it's both? What if both of the things Jesus says here are needed? I want us to think about the perspective of the paralyzed man who's before Jesus for a moment. We have good reason to believe, based on what we read elsewhere in the New Testament, that he probably lived most of his life with an incredible burden of shame and guilt. Right? Often there were teachers who presumed that if you grew up with a particular disease or infirmity, that in some way it was an expression of God's judgment upon you or your family. And so he has come through life carrying this in his person, right? in his bones, so to speak. What if the vision this man carried of who God was and how God saw him was one of deep rejection and guilt? What if he deeply needed those first words of Jesus. Be encouraged, son, son of God. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus, I think, can see, as it says in this passage, into the hearts and the meditations, and the deepest longings of the people in that room. And so he says to the man, not only your sins are forgiven, but now, as the Son of Man authorized to do all that is necessary, he also adds, so take your bed, rise, and go home. Right? Jesus is daring the man to walk and now the young man has a choice to make. Right? He has to choose whether he can trust the authority of Jesus' words to him. Does Jesus really have the authority to wipe away his guilt and shame? Does Jesus really have the authority to silence all of the other critics in the room? Does Jesus really have the authority to send him home on the strength of his own two legs? Does Jesus truly have the authority to say and do things about him that he doesn't have knowledge or power of himself in his own agency? Does Jesus possess that kind of authority? And will he trust him? Well, in verse 7, we're told the man grants Jesus this permission. He grants Jesus consent to be reordered and redefined in the reality of both his soul and his body. Right? Matthew says he got up and he went home. He went home healed, but also forgiven. What an incredible surprise. But look at verse 8. Look at how it says the crowds that day responded 
to this miracle. It says they, they greeted this miracle with a mix of fear and gratitude, with a combination of, of glory and, and worship and also a kind of anxiety about what this meant. How could God have given such authority to a man like Jesus? What if Jesus is seeking the same kind of permission to heal us? How does that strike you? Maybe it's a similar mix of of both a, a glorious invitation and also some fear attached as well. What if Jesus alone possesses the authority to define who you truly are? What if he alone has the authority to restore what he sees most needed within you to be reordered, restored, healed, and changed? Would you give him that permission? What if Jesus is seeking permission to help you unlearn some things you carry within you? Things you think that you know about God, things you think you know about other people, or even things you think you know about your own person. Does Jesus have the authority to speak into those places for us? Do we trust him? Well, I wonder if these sets of questions weren't also running through our gospel writer's head. Because in the very next verse, we're told that Jesus turns up at Matthew's tax booth, intent on healing him in a different way. Look with me at Matthew 9, verse 9 and following. As Jesus went on from there, went on from healing the paralytic, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. He told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick. Instead, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have come to call the righteous. I have, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Without this interaction, without this moment, we wouldn't have the gospel we're studying today. Because this is the calling and the conversion of Matthew. And most of us probably have some general idea of why Matthew was an outsider. Why Matthew was hated in his community. All right, he, was a, he was a Jewish man working for the Roman government to raise funds to, to help continue the Roman occupation. All right, he was seen as a, a traitor. 
But more than that, consider that because of the complicity of their profession, every tax collector under Jewish law was considered perpetually in violation of God's commandments. They were forever unclean. Which meant that no tax collector could come near the synagogue to pray. They could not go to the temple to offer sacrifices in worship. There was no way for them to pursue their own cleansing or forgiveness. In fact, under the law, they were considered sort of a moral equivalent of an unclean beast or animal. That's how they were treated. Right? It, was, it was assumed that their very existence was offensive to God's holiness. And consider, despite all the privileges that Matthew possessed, consider also the incredible rejection and shame that he carried with him. But he tells us that on this particular day, Jesus has one heck of an appetite for controversy. Because he's just finished this dust up with the paralytic and the scribes and Pharisees, right? Presuming to forgive sins that only God could himself know about or excuse. And immediately after that, it says that Jesus goes out to the edge of town and he detonates an even bigger shockwave in Capernaum. Right? He goes to the most disgusting, the most despised, the most unclean, the most off-limits person in the community. And without a word of teaching, without a, a prayer of invitation, without any explanation, Jesus just says, Matthew, come follow me. And in the same way that the paralytic stood to his feet, we're told that Matthew stands up and goes with Jesus. Not only does Matthew go with Jesus, but Matthew actually brings Jesus to his own home. And to make matters even worse for Jesus and his reputation, a whole group of tax collectors and other people that, that because of their occupation or because of their moral standing were considered unclean, this is a once-in-a-life opportunity for them to be close to someone who carries God's word. Someone who speaks and carries the presence of God with him. Right, and so they gather around Jesus. And Matthew throws a feast in his home for them. It's probably hard for us to get a good mental picture of what that meal was like or how offensive, how confusing, how surprising it would have been. Today, if, if we could picture the, the people that, that the church has most recently crusaded against, has found on the wrong side of a political or social or theological or moral category. People who were in fact sinners and knew it and carried it in their own person. That guilt and shame. These are the people Jesus handpicks, right? VIP backstage access at Matthew's house. To the Messiah of Israel. I can imagine that even Jesus' own disciples could have been thrown off. Right? By the boldness of this move. 
confused. Maybe they stayed at the door of Matthew's house rather than going in because for them to enter Matthew's house, even just to walk in, automatically made them unclean in the eyes of that community. Who knows? But we're told that later that day, the tax collectors are found out. They're pursued and hunted down by the Pharisees. And I know the Pharisees wouldn't go in the home, so maybe the disciples are out there in the courtyard kind of trying to figure out what Jesus is doing. And they get the disciples aside. They they take an audience with Jesus' followers, and they begin to interrogate Jesus' authority. Right? In what moral universe is this kind of behavior fitting of a rabbi? Right? Why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can't trust a teacher like this. What could he possibly be trying to teach you? And I think that question is a perfect setup for Jesus in verse 12. Jesus says, what I want to teach them is that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus says, what I've come to do is to give the teachers of God's word like you a refresher. And he says, why don't you go back? This is, this is almost maybe a, maybe a little cheeky for Jesus here. He, he says to the teachers of Israel, go back to your Bibles. And look up these verses in Hosea 6. Where God speaks tenderly to sinners. And he says, what I desire of you is not sacrifice, but mercy. Jesus goes on to say, right, the righteous don't need, the righteous probably would not even permit me to teach them. But these sinners who know the heavy burden of sin that they carry. They delight in the mercy that God alone has authorized me to bring to them. And so Jesus is making here the criterion of a disciple, not our moral purity, but our eagerness to grant Jesus permission, to offer to Jesus the authority to exercise God's mercy in our lives, God's healing, God's transforming power. In all three of the Gospels that record this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think it's important to notice that Matthew's conversion, Matthew's transformation, is always told immediately after the story of the paralytic. Those two stories always come together. It was as if the early church had a conviction that that these miracles that took place on the same day in the same town belonged with each other. And I think if you listen carefully to these two stories, you hear Jesus telling these two men the same thing, just in reverse order. Right To the paralytic, Jesus says first, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, so on your feet now, follow me. To Matthew, Jesus says first, on your feet, 
follow me. And as Matthew begins to follow him that night over dinner, right, Jesus announces how even a tax collector's sins can be forgiven. I think this is the same controversial, scary, surprising message of the gospel that makes any one of us God's sons or daughters. Jesus' message is that sinners can be forgiven. Jesus' message is that that which is broken can be healed. Jesus' message is that the poor in spirit will be given the kingdom of heaven inasmuch as we have granted Jesus permission to act, permission to demonstrate his mercy. Rather than scrutinize the words of Jesus to us, we must receive them. And so my prayer is that we would extend permission for him to do that here. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, your words are life and light and truth. Your words are medicine for the sick, mercy to the ashamed, communion for those in isolation, love for the despised. And so, Lord, if we find ourselves in any of those categories. Pray that we would come to you, give you permission to see deeply into who we are and to speak over us the truth of who we're meant to be in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.